Um, good, yeah. Welcome to the Marmalade Show. I am here today with Phoenix, the Rude Boy, and we are in real, the real Dave, the real Hackney Dave, the real Hackney Dave studio in Hackney Downs area, which is just east, little northeast London. Uh, This is one of the last few handful of weeks, actually, he's in the studio as he is moving to a bigger studio in Hackney Wick. So we're very excited to be here in the last few moments because this is where the creative portion of Dave has come about. So we're excited to get to know him. But this is who I'm so excited to chat about. Phoenix and I have met uh, a little while ago, and yep. I really enjoyed the first moment that we met because it was it was very serendipitous, yeah. where you came in and said, this is the first show that I'm doing here, I think I'll figure it out, and you're not a short person, you have no. some height. A lot of height, yeah. <laughs> and the show that we did was on a boat... That let's just say the roof is not that it's a very tall. very British building standards, yeah. which is like <laughs> low ceilings, but like taken to the extreme. Yes, and I was like, you can manage, right? And you're like, maybe I should get a chair when I perform. And with the style of music that you have, there's a lot of energy when yeah. you come in there. So it was fascinating to see how you were able to captivate the audience in that show yeah. by sitting down because the the building that we were in of size of structure was not suited to your standard at the moment to be no, comfortable. And I was also slightly scared that if I was going to get up, that like maybe we'd like rock the boat too much, uh-huh. you know? And it was like just a lot of... Um, but it was a nice challenge in a way because I was like, it's sofa sounds. I've never done a sofa sounds before. And um, it, you know, obviously like invokes a very like tiny desky, sofa mm. soundsy, acoustic-y vibe. So I was like, this is a, a, you know, in a way it kind of encapsulated that perfect challenge to be like, just sit down and just deliver your music. You know? We were on a boat. You then had to sit down. You had to <laughs> deliver your music to a silent audience. The, the challenges just kept coming yep. that night. And I think that that's why I connected with you so much was your storytelling was just next level. You brought people into different worlds mm-hmm. when you would think when people are out at night and they want to listen to music and everything, mm. there's usually a positive uplifting let's dance or let's you know have this exciting up spirit or let's hear something that's booming or about love you know not Mm. really the depth that you can hear through the stories that you tell which is so sad right because we always used to have these um party songs like prince's 1999 you know which is like you know imagining that you know let's let's party like the world's about to end and that's an amazing party song Mm. and now we literally live in a world that seems like it might just really end you know and it's like i think there's a there's a way to embrace kind of that um anxiety and release it and it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to necessarily be obvious in a way i never really i was always attracted to music that was complex because we're complex as humans right so like summertime which is written in a minor key, but is written about summer, you know? That's why that song is so brilliant and so loved. It's because it's not just a simple, straightforward song, but it has complexity to it. Mm. And Mm. it has nuance to it, and it has an intricacy of emotions to it. And the story isn't just told, you know, like a movie. A movie isn't a movie if it's just everyone being happy all the time. Yeah. 
there's yeah. there's a whole story and layers to be told and with music you have two three four five minutes to do that mm. so you have to try and i guess find a way to transport people but do it in an unexpected way i guess as well yeah yeah it's important so people want to listen over and over and over again and yeah. hear different parts of the story yeah because i mean as a there's kind of two kinds of music there's music which you hear which is instantly gratifying which i think we have a lot of and people complain a lot of and there's an mm -hmm. art to that mm -hmm. um, making incredibly catchy songs and mm -hmm. i don't take away anyone's artistry because it's, that is an incredible art mm -hmm. but i find there's also music that the best music for me personally has been the music that the first time i heard it i was like what the fuck mm. i don't understand this mm. and then i've gone back and listened to it again and then on the fifth tenth twentieth listen i'm still discovering new elements and new things mm. that I didn't hear. And mm. that for me is the most enjoyable music. Yeah, yeah, it makes like you think. It's like a good rebook, a good book that you can reread and reread <laughs> and you keep discovering new elements. Too. Wow, because there's some familiarity to it. Yeah. But yet you still get to hear it differently. And parts of your life probably you hear it differently over things that you're going through at different times. Yeah. So I want to rewind. As, as a, a, when you were growing up, when you were young, was that a big part of your life? Was music a massive influence? Was art a massive influence? When was the first moment that maybe you felt, I am a creative person, whether you knew it or someone told you you're creative? And is there a moment that maybe comes to mind? Um, I think for me, creativity has always gone hand in hand with identity and expression. Mm. And I think the way I, my relationship to music growing up was very... I guess different to a lot of people and the first piece of music I think that really touched and inspired me was an album I grew up I was born in Germany mm -hmm. and uh, this was in the 90s in Germany so we had to kind of give a context of like the social environment that I grew up in in a small town in Germany we had um, we used to have sweets in a shop we had mm -hmm. a little horrible biscuit base and then some really like um, old tasting cream filling and chocolate covering and uh, nowadays they're called um, Schokelküsse mm. which means a chocolate kiss when I was growing up they were called Negerküsse mm. which I don't think I need to translate mm -hmm. and that was okay it was advertised on TV it was in shops mm. and I was one of a handful of black people in the whole town mm -hmm. and um, kind of growing up and navigating that environment the first my mum gave me an album by a collective of Afro-German, Afro-French, Afro-British artists. He also had Damien Marley, Z um, Ziggy Marley on there. And it was an album called Light Couture. Mm -hmm. And it was this really incredible amalgamation of Afro-German experience. And for me, as growing up between the ages of, you know, being born in Germany up to about 11, 12, living there, apart mm -hmm. from some periods where we moved around, that was the way that I kind of was able to understand racism in that context and all the different forms of it because this one piece of music explained to me the history, the context, different situations that I was put in and was able to explain that to me way more than any adult could because as a child I couldn't, I didn't even understand the concept of what was going on. Yeah. And I think that introduction to music along with Nina Simone and Bob Marley, music for me growing up was a way of holding on mm. and finding pride and finding strength and it was kind of that like you come home and I would just put this album on and repeat and it was you know 
just this one piece of the world, this little disc mm. that actually understood my experience where everything else in the world I grew up in didn't. Mm. And that was, I think, very foundational in how I started music. And I think that then inspired me. That was the first time I ever went on stage, one of the songs. And my mum and a few other black single mums, the only ones who were in the city, kind of decided to make a group together. And we would meet up all the weekends and all the kids would get together mm. and play. And then they got us together um, and they sang one of the songs from the album mm. in, a, in a performance in a community centre somewhere. And me and a friend of mine went up and did a little rap and that was like my first time being on stage. And I'd forgotten that for years until I kind of had come back to it more recently and I was like, that was actually the first time I did music on stage, <laughs> was that album. And now kind of looking back, I'm like, makes total sense. Wow. Yeah. How old were you? Do you remember? Like eight or nine. Wow. Yeah. And I guess until recently when that's kind of come back into your head and stuff, has it come back in different moments of your life that you've kind of rethought about that during different stages of Definitely. writing? Yeah. Has um, it influenced you differently over those massively. times? Massively. I think it's it's interesting kind of, because if, again, being so young, you kind of, of course you remember, but then sometimes there are points in your life where you forget about those moments and then mm. you kind of, you know, rediscovering and going back to the album, you know, every couple of years and so being older and I'm like, oh yeah, that... Mm amazing album mm. and it's like every time it's just and it's it, the music as well is incredible the artists are incredible you know i think they had like 50 artists on there in mm. like 13 tracks so everyone just came and gave one verse to you know this and it was almost like you know it was it was a hip-hop album it was a soul album it was a reggae album and at the same time it was so um it was a storytelling album each song had its own story that was you know, one track of the album, which is in German, so a lot of people wouldn't be able to appreciate it, unfortunately. Mm. But it doesn't have a hook. It just kind of is stitched together by phone conversations. Oh, wow. So the beat would come in, and then you would hear background noises and phone conversations, and it told the story of two girls, um, two Afro-German women, seeing um, one of their mates getting beaten up by three skinheads in the car park, yeah. which in mm. Germany still to this day have Nazi neighborhoods, you know, in mm. cities where when I go, my family's like, don't go, don't go to that neighborhood. Mm. Um, so, and then they're kind of phoning and phoning around and trying to get friends to come around and help him up. And then, you know, you hear like in between, like running down the stairs and slamming car doors and people panicking and then calling. And it's just very, you know, to, to write a song with such a structure. And to hear that and take that in, I think that was massively inspirational, mm. even if I didn't realize. Mm. So I do like unconventional song structures and mm -hmm. ways of telling stories and mm. trying to make it come alive in ways that you don't necessarily think about in mm. popular music. Mm. When you were young, did you have a lot of support in the arts and especially in music from family and friends in Germany? And then when you moved place to place and stuff like that? Yeah, art was definitely the one refuge I always had as a child. Mm. Even in Germany, um, it's funny, when I wasn't in Germany, I was always a class A student. Mm. And when I was in Germany, all of a sudden I wasn't. But the one subject that I always excelled in was actually as a kid was drama. And mm. even in Germany, where most of my teachers hated me, every single year when it came time for the school play, I had the main role. Because oh. you couldn't, you know, the stage was the one place that also felt like home and I can escape mm. and I think as a kid I was really drawn to acting because I could pretend to be anyone I wanted to be mm. I didn't have to be myself 
And then as I grew older, I was like, actually, I don't want to pretend to be people anymore. I just want to figure out myself and learn yeah. to love and be myself. And I think that's what then drew me more to music. But the other thing also was always writing. I think mm. that's what I got from that album. And I used to write plays, poems, songs, books, short stories. And pen and paper was always a massive friend to me as well. So you've gone back and forth between London, Germany, living in a bunch of other places throughout your life and everything. But for the last handful of years, you've been in London. Yeah, mostly. And you've not just been constructing different types of art through music and other pieces of creativity, but you've also been forming a lot of groups Mm. and be able to cultivate movements over Mm. time. And that's how we really connected in a lot of ways and consistently keep talking about over and over and over again. Specifically over the pandemic, um, Black Lives Matter was Mm. a massive conversation piece that was happening not just in the States where I was and ultimately the US sometimes we feel like we have the borders around and nothing else exists and everything. But there was so much of a conversation happening around the world Mm. with Black Lives Matter and you have done a lot of work when that initially started kicking off. Mm. And tell me a story of that moment that it clicked for you of, yes, I want to do something, but this is how I'm going to share who I am. This is how I'm going to move people. This is how I'm going to connect people. Was there a moment or was there over the course of time you saw it grow? It was definitely a moment. Um, it was kind of the the second week of protests or so. Um, I don't remember because it was obviously, as we all remember, first lockdown time was very weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'd gone to the first week of protests and Um, It was just masses of people in the street, marching, chanting. um, And then slowly, as the week had gone on, I'd seen more and more escalation of confrontations with the police. But because I'm very tall, um, which is a reoccurring problem in life, (laughs) I um, had a, and you know, obviously it was a very emotionally charged environment. So me and my very tall self always ended up being at the front because, you know, I walk a little faster. So I kind of had a, and also, you know, climbing up on a lot of things. I'm very, you know, um, you probably haven't seen that service sometimes I perform, I climb a lot of things. So I was um, stood on um, one of the side massive stone rails of like uh, just outside number 10 Downing Street. Mm. And I saw one of the protesters climb over the police court and then simply put his fist in the air. And the police officer stepped forward and punched him in the face. Um, And then I'd kind of gone and gotten footage of that and posted it and kind of gotten to the thing. The next couple of protests later in that week was the one where we all got run down by horses. And that was, you know, one of the most, like, terrifying. There was literally no reason for it happening and in the news that evening they edited it very deceptively where they kind of showed people throwing things at horses and then they showed the horses running everyone down Mm. when in reality the horses ran everyone down and then everyone started throwing things at the horses you know Mm. so it's like oh you told this story backwards um and that was like it's really like watching that just you know, just felt so deceptive and so hurtful. And I was like, what are, What on earth can I do? You know, because every single evening I'd gone home at the end of the protest feeling more upset than I'd been to leave my house in the first place in the middle of a pandemic to go, you know? 
And then、um, being a creative and you know, always having crazy ideas, I would rang up a friend of mine who busks and has an incredible voice. And I said, I was just like, you know, the thing that kind of was running through my mind was thinking back on civil rights in the past. As I was like, why is there nobody speaking? You know, where, where can we stop just shouting Black Lives Matter? And when do we actually start making a list of demands and saying this is what we want to see? When do we start actually engaging and, you know, speaking about what's going on and not just screaming about it? Because it's amazing to shout Black Lives Matter in the street, but after a week, you're like, it's three words. So much freaking more to say than just that. And、um, so I called up my friends and called up a bunch of other friends, and I was like, I just had this idea for, I was like, why don't we bring. The speaker to the protest, and then because my friend had this incredible, amazing, huge voice, I was like, I think A, people need to hear you right now, and they really need to hear you sing Change Hong Come.、Mm. Um, and B, that's the only way I can think to try and grab and zone the attention of tens of thousands of people. So we put up a poster, everyone told me I was crazy,、mm. and it just went viral. And then I had this phone call from my sister, and she's like, This is great and all, but you realize you're responsible for all these lives of these people. And I was like, Oh, yeah, damn moment. And then,、um, then we did the first protest, like ad hoc, and, you know, coordinated with different people、um, to kind of bring the whole march to an end outside Trafalgar Square. And we were just there with this little speaker that was crackling all over the place. And my friend Ruth Brown sang Change Gone Come. And it was just kind of this, yeah, you know, we didn't, didn't imagine that it was going to be anything of what it would be. But it just very much, that whole summer for me, it just felt like I was just placed on a treadmill. By some higher power and told, this is what you're supposed to do, run.、Mm. You know? And then from there, everything was just a whirlwind. Yeah. But it was kind of just this, yeah, I guess that whole growing up and always having related, you know, for me, my almost like chants growing up, like as, you know, kindergarten chants was like Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley.、Mm. And I think that was just like the only thing that I could think to do and not having anything to do in the first lockdown. And I was like, well, this, you know, is clearly the thing. And then from there, everyone all of a sudden turned up to all the protests with speakers and microphones.、Mm. And I was like, you know, people tapped me on the shoulder and were like, do you need a bigger setup? I can give you a setup. And、mm. the community outpouring was just incredible to just see people say, yes, we want more of this and、yeah. keep doing this, please. And yeah.、Mm. Powerful to be able to take action. But take action in a small step for you in、mm-hmm. some way of just being able to have everyone pause for a second and say, This is why. This is why we're doing it in a different lens that you are so well versed, like、mm. well versed in with music and being able to tell stories in so many ways through not just a speech, through not just. Yelling and saying and calling people the wrong thing at the wrong time,、yeah. but yet spreading education、mm. through, through stories. And joy as well. It was the other thing I was really.、Uh, two, the only two things I knew about that day is I went to open on my friend singing Change Gone Come and I went to close on、um, Cam- Candy by Cameo.、Mm. Because especially in Britain, that is, and, and in Black British culture, it's such a staple and doing the electric slide. And I, was, I, I knew that I didn't want it, you know. I'd always seen also in protests, you know, as soon as the sun goes dark, the police's gloves kind of come off. 
So I really had this, you know, um, in my head that once I got to 7 p.m., I was going to play candy and get everyone to do the candy and then tell them all to go home because I was like, I don't want any. And I still, to this day, in all the protests I've ever had, there's not been any confrontations or allocations of police mm. because at the end of the day, it's not, you know, it's about having this conversation, but not as a physical conversation. And a lot of the times protests, as incredible as they are, it can easily become a very physical conversation. And that's very easy to frame in a way that doesn't necessarily help what you're trying to achieve. So for me, it was more about making it a spiritual and a mental and an emotional conversation and mm. using music especially to do that. I feel like you've been able to tell stories and activate it differently over these yeah. few years. What is, can you tell me a little bit more on how that's shifted over time for you personally, yeah. but also for this movement of people that Definitely. you've touched? I think it's, um, I think it kind of, I mean, the best kind of story, I think, to get into how the movement itself and to how it is now is like when we went on tour, because I think we've done a whole bunch of protests already um, in London, and I was kind of feeling like we're preaching to the choir and mm. preaching to converted. And so I had another crazy idea and I was like, guys, why don't we go on a tour of the UK and take it to, you know, out there where it's not so many people that are just going to agree with us because obviously it's this very multicultural left-wing stronghold in the yeah. middle of the country. And so we managed to crowdfund about um, two and a half thousand pounds and um, took 20 artists on tour around the UK um, and did five stops, um, which I still don't quite know how we managed to do it on such a small budget. Um, but that was really like the point where um, I guess kind of for me it changed because not only did we have this incredible experience of traveling around and being able to visit all these places and interact with all these communities, but also it was kind of the point where I saw how much it meant to all the artists. Mm. And we kind of made a really, um, reason why I called it Black Music Movement is because I was like, the, the thing that I think is most powerful that we can use as black people is our culture and especially our music because it, you don't have to be black to make black music, but virtually every music on this planet that we listen to right now has been touched by black music in mm. some way, shape or form. So you are a part of our culture and you appreciate and love our culture so for me it was almost saying let's weaponize this culture and really use this to get through to people mm. and then yeah being able to really experience and see and we really kind of wanted to i wanted to make sure that when we did this tour this lineup was representative of the whole world i didn't want it to be just a bunch of black artists coming out i wanted it to be mainly female i wanted to make sure there was queer people in there i wanted to make sure every demographic was represented in there whether you were white whether you were black whether you were asian you could come and see somebody on our tour and say oh this person i can relate to in my own way mm -hmm. and to have all these people speak on these topics and also the intersectionality of a lot of these issues because it was it started off because of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and very quickly the more we traveled around and we always at our um, protests always had an open microphone so anyone could come up and share it wasn't just about us it was always very clear that this is for the people mm. and so if you have something to say if you have something to share please come up and let us know and through that experience it grew from just being a movement about racism to a movement about feminism, a movement about queer rights, a movement about the environment, a movement about 
all these issues, which really the root cause of which is is capitalism mm. and this kind of patriarchal structure we still live under. Mm. And we found that all these people actually had far more in common, you know, workers' rights, everything, you know, far more in common than we had against each other, mm. actually. You know, it may be lots of different problems, but they're branches of the same tree, mm. the same rotten tree. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the point where it was kind of, you know, what, how do we move past? And also protesting is really scary as well, activism. I mean, like going into that world is an incredibly terrifying experience. Um, and so kind of seeing what it did for all the artists to be on tour and to be able to connect with each other and the experience that they had, that was kind of the point where I was like, I think this is what I can now see myself doing. And then kind of went more into putting on more gigs and more shows and being like let's actually you know we've, we've brought music to the protest and we've spent this whole summer protesting and telling everyone this protest doesn't mean anything if you don't take it home so then it kind of got to the point where it's like well now it's time for us to take it home and mm. how do we now in our everyday lives continue to do this so it was like let's take the protest into the music itself and be able to really empower artists and that then kind of became the mission of what can we do to change the the performance industry and make it a more open space? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so many challenges. I mean, it's a incredibly racist, incredibly misogynistic, and incredibly homophobic industry still. Mm-hmm. I, like you know, speaking to female artists, for example, I don't think I've spoken to or interacted with a female artist ever who hasn't told me a story about some producer being creepy and sleeping with them and then withholding music. And it's a story I hear from every female artist that they've gone through at some point in their life. And, you know, these are all these different things are massive issues in the industry which no one speaks about. The music entertainment industry is the only industry in the world where it's perfectly okay and legal to employ children. (laughs) And their parents make all their money and these children have to work day in, day out. And they're children. They don't have the legal ability to really consent to this but we don't question that we're just like oh it's a cute kid on tv yay so there's a lot of really deep ethical questions i think the industry needs to ask itself about what they're doing and how they're doing it and i think that kind of then became more the challenge for us is how can we try and impact and have a change on that Mm. do you feel like you've been able to I'm not going to say change people's minds, mm. but have a small impact that has seen slow growth over time. That Maybe you're aware of it, maybe you're not aware of it in some ways, but hearing it from other places. Definitely. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, not that social media is like a holy grail of anything, but mm. it was definitely received incredible messages over social media and also in person, you know, at protests where... Um, you know, people have said that, you know, they walked past and stopped and a lot of people, especially from the older generation, who kind of went like, I didn't know what was going on here, but then I heard music and I saw people dancing and I was drawn in and then I heard you all speaking and, you know, now that I've actually been here at this and I kind of ended up at a protest, I really understand what's going on. Mm. And, um, yeah, this is very, it's a weird dichotomy, you know, because then at the same time, there's been so many occasions in the years after that where like one thing that really hit me was a case that happened on the way here i was going around the corner around stoke newington police station where i'd gone to a protest last year 
about the um, schoolgirl, school child Q who'd been strip searched in her school. Mm. And while I was at that protest, I found out that that was happening as we were on tour, you know? And then this really like elated feeling of like, oh my God, we're changing the world and making a difference. And going to that protest and hearing about all of that going on at that same time and reflecting back on that, I literally had to leave halfway through and I was just in the park next door crying and thinking, why was I doing all of that, you know? Yeah. And did I affect anything at all? And has anything really changed? Mm. So it's this very weird dichotomy where you can sometimes see that, yes, you've made some changes, but at the same time, it's, it doesn't feel like sometimes anything's changed. Has it influenced your music at all, this process over time, over the past few years mm. of maybe not just topics, but let's get even more in depth with maybe not just the lyrics, but maybe it's the production or the sounds mm. or the feeling. When you said earlier of music, even though you're speaking in a language at times, it could be universal Yeah. with the sound of things. Do you feel that that sound has potentially changed or has just evolved over the last, let's just say two, three years of going through this process? I think the way it's, uh, if it's changed my music, I think it's changed more the way I approach music. I think before I did this, even though you did used to put on shows and stuff with other art, for other artists and with other artists, this has made me a lot more interested in working behind the scenes, which I never knew before. Like I'm really passionate about managing artists now and getting mm -hmm. them to kind of go to their next stage. Um, as for me, I just I haven't really had a lot of time to do art anymore because of that, I think. So I'm still kind of discovering that next place um, for myself as an artist and my own music. Hmm. But I know that it's become a lot more communal in that sense. And that I've definitely developed like new passions in terms of helping other people express themselves and managing other artists and A&Ring and putting more gigs on and putting festivals on and, and watched a really the Netflix documentary The Black Godfather mm. about um, it's incredible um, about the gentleman I forgot his name but he was you know started off as a music manager way back in the blues days and you know has essentially worked with everyone who's anyone and that was an incredibly inspiring documentary to watch as well and I've always been inspired by Quincy Jones as well and I think it's kind of developed more my passion as a songwriter as well, which I always wanted to do. Um, and now I'm kind of getting to work with artists and help them write a lot more and help find their own creative identities a lot more. And mm. I think that has really been sparked a lot more through Black Music Movement and being able to see and follow and realize that I had those passions in the first place. And now I'm like, you know, and I think the other part of it was being an activist and being so, I guess it kind of gave you a little taste of being in the public eye and interacting with media and all these kind of things. And I never really wanted, you know, to be like a famous artist anyway. I was always like, I love, just had lovely underground albums and I have enough of a fan base that I can tour the world. Amazing, that's the dream. And I think that experience has definitely reinforced that in that sense. So I'm still kind of adjusting my relationship to music and how to navigate that in kind of all those experiences hmm. because it's it's not easy kind of being in that um, light and sphere of so many people watching you 
and those expectations and also just the navigating the politics of everything like I really you know it made me feel so much more for if you watch the footage of my first protest I was like you know cussing out the prime minister and all of this and then once you've had all these experiences of like you know having Twitter backlash and politicians coming for you and mm. TV stations and you know all of this stuff it kind of it, it's it's one thing kind of hearing about it you know the the it, i don't know if you've watched the movie um billy holiday against the world against the united states of america mm. when they used to you know the cia persecuted her and basically you know would some points take her off stage if she dared to sing strange fruit mm. um and then today on the way here i was reading actually that the fbi declassified files that they were spying on aretha franklin <laughs> because of her civil rights activism mm. and we kind of hear about those things in a historical framework mm. but it very much still goes on today mm. and kind of facing things like police intimidation getting phone calls emails from them seeing other activists be physically harmed it's it's very very kind of becomes very real very suddenly and I can definitely kind of, you know, watching like back on NWA and, and seeing the way that they got treated, it kind of made me very much be like, well, you know, because my music is very, very, very rebellious, very protestical, very um, in your face in certain instances. And then it kind of made me stop for a second and be like, ooh, do I want to put certain songs out when I know I've written them in mind with so much to create and stir mm. controversy, but then I'm like, Am I really ready for that controversy? So I guess in that sense, it's mm. kind of has made me reassess certain things where I'm like, what can I say? What can't I say? And that's kind of a side effect of all of that, I guess, is even though you're going against all of this, it does kind of, yeah, change your perspective mm. when you kind of know that there's a, a magnifying glass on you, mm. you know? It's a very right. weird feeling to be watched, you know, and I, yeah. it, I guess it kind of in that sense gave me a taste of, of celebrity culture mm. and it was a very surreal taste of it all. Mm. And for me, to be honest, in Black Music Movement, the ultimate goal with it is um, one quote that I heard when I was younger, I used to, when I had my first job, I used to work in a pub and I spoke to um, the jazz band used to come play every Sunday. And I spoke to the drummer of the jazz band. We used to have really great conversations. And um, one thing he said to me was, um, at the time I was studying music, and he said, oh, what do you want to be? And I said, an artist. And he said, you know, well, like a recording artist. And I said, well, yeah, you know, recording, performing. And he said, well, you guys have destroyed music. And I was like, what? And he's like, you know, before you had a recording equipment, music, being a musician was a, a, a serious job that anyone could do if you had the talent and you put the work in, because in order to hear music, you had to go somewhere to listen to musicians play, or you had to learn to play yourself. Mm. And once we started creating recorded music, we destroyed the livelihood of musicians because it became this very exclusive elitist club of only the best of the best can be a musician. Mm. And I think with streaming and the advent of that and independent artistry really growing, I think we're kind of moving away again slowly from that celebrity hyper obsessed culture mm. and music is becoming slowly and more even though there's still a lot of gateways especially financial gateways to being able to be a musician but i think slowly it's becoming more communal and more democratized and becoming more of a regular thing again which i think is good i don't think everyone needs to be a beyonce or a madonna or this or mm. that i think it's actually mm. a lot healthier and better for people if we had like a vibrant 
music um, system and, mm. and industry that was less obsessed on some amazing individual and more obsessed on seeing how many incredible individuals we have. And I mm. think that's what we're really focused on. And for me, what I'm kind of focused on is trying to reshape this industry over time to not only just be more embracing of others, but be more embracing of people in general and mm. less kind of hyper-capitalist in that sense. Because mm. mm. we don't, you know, it's not, it's when people like, oh my God, Whitney's in the voice of a generation. She was an incredible voice, yeah. But I literally have friends that sing just like her, you know, and just as well. And it's like, it's not a competition, you know. I think sometimes it, it feels like you're getting into sports rather than arts. It's mm. like it's not the Olympics, you know. Mm. That's such a such an interesting point. And yeah, I think that's that's for me now. Like the goal is how do we change this industry in that sense? Yeah. Because I yeah, for me, I'd love for it to you know some point when I'm like an old person, I'm like grandchildren, if I ever have any, can just be like, oh, I want to be a musician, and not like me, where a lot of the most world tells you, oh, you're gonna have to get a serious job, you know. Mm. It's like, well, I've studied this and I've paid for it at university and I've spent most of my life doing it. It's pretty damn serious for me. Yeah. And, you know, it, it didn't get good with by just coming out of the womb and being like, ah, oh, look at me, I'm musical. It, 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 you know, I wasn't actually, when I was younger and I went to go into music, I, I used to sing a lot and mm -hmm. everyone was always like, you can't really sing, why are you doing music? And then I got in, I used to rap as well, but I got more and more into that and people always told me I should rap more and it was actually never really this like x-factor journey of like oh this person was so incredibly talented it was more me being like I really love this thing so I'm gonna keep and keep on doing it until I get really good at it mm. and I got good at it through hard work you know mm. and the talent that I had was more in writing than it was in actual music mm -hmm. but I loved music so much that I became good at it and I think that to me is far more inspirational and important to actually put out there and project as an industry than saying some people are just born gifted and those people are therefore the anointed ones. Some people are yeah. born incredibly gifted. My little sister, mm. from when she was born, you know, from when she was three years old, we were like, oh my God, she can really sing and it's a natural talent. Mm. But that doesn't mean that someone who works really hard and becomes good at it that way, someone who works really hard at becoming good at an instrument, doesn't deserve the same pay and the same respect, you know? Yeah. Wow. It's a lot to think about. Yeah. And it's a lot that you consistently think about on a on a daily basis. Definitely. Of of how do you how do you think of those depths where it's not just about you anymore. It's not just about your experience, mm. but it's everything that you touch, that you share, and how easy it is to share nowadays, and yeah. how there could be repercussions because other people think differently. And it's, it's obviously, it's so, it's so sad, the world that we live in today, where you can't express yourself of being someone who is trying to facilitate conversation, mm. facilitate understanding, education, just being able to converse but yet people want to shut that down mm. and at the same time i have no idea what it's like to to think that way and to feel that way on your end where you have to think again whether it's worth sharing it mm. you work so hard to tell a story you work so hard to 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 give something to somebody else 
for them to think, for them to feel that they're connected in some way, that they're not the only ones that think in some direction. I mean, that's what I've taken so much from you as mm. a person is that it's not about you. It's about the collective and yeah. you just want to help champion those people to say that you can do this. Yeah. Your story does matter. What you think is great. Maybe we can keep talking about this over and over and over again so we can yeah. learn together. And I'm sorry that it is a consistent thought of yours that you have to feel that you sometimes can't share those things mm. and you can't touch other people and be able to bring that out because that is a sad world to live in those ways, to be able to do that. Yeah. And I'm gonna switch a little bit now into something that who you are is obviously defined in, in the passion that you have mm. with music, with black music movement, but even more just representation of identity in those ways. But you're also a very well-faceted person in some other fun environments. You're always wearing so much color, yeah. which I absolutely love. There's always extra cool things that you bring out left and right, but you also have some other interests yeah. and makes you kind of who you are. What is something that you like doing on a, let's say, Sunday afternoon to kind of just keep yourself out of the worlds that we live in into passions of yours. Or maybe during this time you share that you have a handful of months, you've kind of taken a taken a sidestep and saying, I'm gonna work in these other yeah. passions. Where is there a moment that you go, I love doing this? And what is that? I think it's definitely, a, outside of music, one of the only biggest side passion is cooking and food. Um, I've been vegetarian since I was like three years old. Mm. But um, so I think from, and the rest of my family all eat meat. So from a really young age, you know, my mum also used to be a chef, my grandma was a chef. So very, you know, foodie family. And then from a young age, it was just like, well, we always have to cook separately for you. So, you know, as soon as you're old enough to hold a knife, we might as well start teaching you how to <laughs> cook for yourself. Um, Get in the so kitchen, that, come like, on, we're gonna yeah. have more cooks in the kitchen, yeah. And that was always like in, in um, from when I was really, really young, just the thing that like, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, gonna get good at this because it was just, um, food is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's like masturbation for the soul, you mm. know? It's like a way to make love to yourself, cooking for yourself. I, I don't know if there's anything actually more satisfying than like that moment in the day when you're like in the middle of the day working or whatever you're doing and then you just have like this image in your head and like this fantasy of like I want to eat this specific meal mm. and like you know sometimes it's like really obscure and like something you've seen on a restaurant menu or whatever but I've always had this real joy of being like I've never eaten that before I wonder, I wonder how to make that and then mm. I look up a recipe and kind of I'm like okay that's what they generally use and then I just I don't normally follow it I just buy the ingredients and I'm like how would I just figure this out you know it looks um, like, yeah, this would be yeah. fine. You like know, recently I've been really obsessed with like, um, I was like, I need to learn how to make ramen. Like, why don't I know mm. how to make ramen, you know? And then I've been like buying lots of different miso paste and seaweed types and, mm. you know, different vegetables, so, like different noodles. Like, I'm like, do I like the soba or the udon noodles? And I'm like, do I need the toasted sesame? And just like... Um, that sounds young, for sure. Getting well. lost yeah. in <laughs> food, you know? Like food is, food is definitely a massive passion. Um, you are such a creative person. You have so many stories to tell. Mm. People need to know how to connect more. And I think that you do such a good job of being able to share that with people, of mm. giving them an opportunity to be able to open themselves up. And I think you need to consistently do that. Okay. And don't let anyone tell you to stop because people gravitate. 
people connect mm. and people really know that they can be true to themselves because they see you and how your journey has been mm. over so many years of you living and living in so many different places and experiencing different environments. Please keep going. Thank you, Thank you so much for everything that you've Thank shared. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so moving, Phoenix, and I really am excited to see how you continue to touch so many other people and make so many other people feel that they are valued and they really want to be able to make a difference in the world because I know that you do. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. All right. Well, we are in this insane, cool print shop that you have orchestrated here. This is real Hackney Dave. Yeah, not fake, the camera. not fake Hackney yes. Dave. Real, real Hackney Dave. Yeah. And we will show you this what this looks like in a moment. Yeah. But just to be able to say, I love that you have just the name printed. Everybody knows what they're getting into when they From, come here. I used here. to work in advertising. <laughs> You've got to tell people what you do right? and who you are. And make it loud. Make, make it loud. It make it pink. Make it pink. I like yeah. that a lot, a lot. You are such a fascinating person. Mm. And I love that you consistently just have stories. And you always say, you told me. I'm old. <laughs> That's what happens. No, you are interesting. You are right, interesting. Okay. And I love how when we were chatting about coming in and talking about what we're doing here, you go, yeah, you just tell me what you want to talk. I got stories and stories and stories. Yeah. Well, this space didn't just happen just because you said, oh, yeah, screw it. I'll just try this and stuff. It went through a long journey of things. Yeah. Can you tell me about that potential moment or series of moments that you went through that pretty much orchestrated what you have today and what you're doing today. Yeah, I mean, a, bit, a big part of it is I think life it happens quite slowly when you're younger and you start to do things that you don't even think about. You just do it, you fall into a rhythm, you, you get into a groove and you do it. And I, and I did that in my past life when I worked in advertising for 35 years. I worked for other people, I've set up a few businesses of my own, tried to do what I wanted to do, found it very frustrating because the business is very small-minded and very driven by one thing which is making fuck loads of money and mm. fucking people over and uh, it just wasn't the kind of thing I enjoyed doing so I kept setting up these businesses with other people that would be nice places for me to do what I like to do which was be nice to people and inspire people and make it a nice safe place for creativity advertising doesn't want to do that it wants mm. to make money out of clients very quickly mm -hmm. and uh, I was also in a toxic relationship with my ex-wife. Um, I sat there one day, and I don't know if it was a midlife crisis, but I just sat there and thought, fuck, I'm really lucky. I live in the UK. I work, live in London in the 21st century. Um, I've got loads of choices that millions and billions of other people around the world don't have. I can choose what I eat, what, what I do, where, what I wear, where I live, what I hang around, who I hang around with, mm. what I drive. And I'm still fucking miserable. Mm. And um, I thought they, these are all choices that I made. You know, I married the woman I married. I, I employed the people I employed. I set up these businesses and I just sat there and had this kind of weird epiphany where I thought, you know what, I'm fucked if I'm going to carry on doing things that make me feel shit. Yeah. I was 50 at the time, 50, 54 at the time. And I just thought I'm running out of time. I might have only, what, 12, 13 summers left mm. before I'm standing in the street shouting at people in my underpants. <laughs> And I just thought, um, you know, that's not very long. And I'd also had an incident, I told you earlier, where I yeah. died when I was 14. Mm. And I don't think that affected me much at the time or until I started thinking about it in a bigger way, which is I'm going to die and I'm not coming back. Mm. And I just thought, I just really want to do things that I enjoy doing for mm. the last 15 years. Because mm -hmm. the last 20, then there might be five or 10 more after that, but it's not going to be much fun. And... Um, 
And so I just thought, right, fuck it, I'm going to only, only do things that make me feel good. And it was a kind of what I call positive selfish. I'm just going to do things that make me feel good. And if I'm happy, then everybody around me is going to be happy. Yeah. And so yeah. I left my wife, which was pretty catastrophic and mm. has been messy. And I left my job when I lost all my money. And um, But you know what? I'm fucking, I'm the happiest I've ever been. Mm. Um I'm doing what I want to do. I don't wake up stressed anymore. I don't wake up angry. I don't go to bed feeling f- wired and fucked and frazzled. I just do what I got to do, and I go to bed and I come in and do it again. Yeah, it's very like Groundhog Day, but it's also it's also I think it happened when the pandemic was. Uh, I I set, start, became professional mm-hmm. artist, full time artist, 2020, going matching numbers, 2020 vision. Mm. I can see clearly, yeah. getting all excited. And I got I got the virus in March. And I was sick for seven weeks, and then I th- and everyone's hoarding bog paper and fighting over food in the supermarket. I'm like, what the fuck have I done? You know, how's art how's art going to be important? And I used it just to keep myself ticking over because yeah. the streets were empty, and I would just go out and print stuff, and mm. then on Instagram start connecting with people and giving them free prints just to put in the window. And it was all stuff like I said, keep your chin up, mm. keep everybody kind of. But it was just a sort of, I don't know, it was this sort of weird moment in time. And I think now I don't sort of worry about anything long term because the mm. pandemic has taught us if you can get to the end of the week yeah. and you've got spam in the fridge or an apple in the cupboard, you know, it's yeah. like that's, you're doing all right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, been a, it's been a very wow. weird time. It's very, been very weird. Well, it's interesting of a weird point in history as well yeah. of being able to switch that yeah. and I feel for me personally that connects strongly with mm-hmm. myself yeah. was that I felt like I was on a trajectory I was on a trajectory and I was finding creativity a little bit more as the pandemic was slowly approaching obviously not knowing <clears throat> that that was going to happen yeah. and that dramatic pause in life I think really made certain people reassess well it kind of fucked with everything in a really good way as well because I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff that's come out of it I think yeah. it changed the way we think about corporate Operations. It mm. changes the way we think about where we live, what we do, mm-hmm. what we want to do. Mm. Um, you know, why would you want to sit in a big WeWork space with a bunch of strangers who mm. are all fighting air around each other? Mm. And like, you just sort of think, if I can, if I've got internet access, I can live and do whatever I want to do. True. And then, I just think the way we think about money, the amount of money that we didn't spend. Yeah. was quite interesting because we weren't going out all the time we weren't going on holiday we weren't doing all the things we were doing when we were in Boomtown and we can do whatever yeah. I don't know I, th- I think there's lots of good stuff that will come out of it yeah yeah I agree I agree and you've been able to switch your creativity through advertising into this what was your creative outlet into something that you yeah. didn't did you stumble upon like no, printing I used to, or I used, to, I used to do it I used to do it okay. a lot anyway I used to make stuff all the time yeah. advertising I think was a way of allowing me to be creative and then still make stuff so i think i was always always create trying to be creative uh, advertising you're obviously creative for somebody else you've got a client who wants you to do something and you have to follow a brief so i would always do a lot of stuff on the side um but i think it was when i left this business in 2014 they it was my old it was my business so when mm. i when i left they put me on gardening leave for a year to stop me from working i was going to set up another little business and um, i went and did a screen printing course around the corner and um, I thought I've got a year to try and learn three things: screen printing, sculpture, sculpture, and saving a life. And I did screen printing first, and I thought, "Fuck, fuck the other two! I'm just <laughs> going to do that." And I just thought, "I just want to be a now. I just want to be an artist." It was like an epiphany. Mm. It was like, "Wow, I like. I feel like I'm more studio than I am boardroom. I don't mm. want, ever want to wear a collar mm. again." Mm. And um, 
it's very liberating when you get to do your own stuff yeah. and you've obviously got to build that momentum so that people like your stuff enough to buy it and you can make a business out of it but mm-hmm. it's great mm. and um, yeah it was like a religious moment I mean, mm. just that was it what do you try to achieve every time that you make a new series of prints or trying to tell a different story what is do you have similar goals that you try to achieve do you have different structure that you try to replicate over and over and over again or is every project or different prints just a way for you to look differently into what you are good at there's a lot of stuff that i think is everything is sort of connected because the world i've come from is very is very structured and all about the brand and so you create the brand universe now whether it's pink funny words printing onto things you find you know there'll be a whole bunch of things that sit in the world i i I occupy Mm. and so when i when i started i looked at what everybody else was doing and i was thinking fuck you know all of these people are much younger than me they've got a much bigger head start they're probably a lot better than me so what's the area that i can occupy Mm. and so it was just like well i might do stuff that i find print onto things nobody else seems to print onto things they find Mm. well maybe they didn't pop up but nobody seems to do it now or not enough people do it now yeah and nobody's using pink nobody's using funny words so i could just sit there and combine all that and make it stuff that I like to do mm. and then once you get into a rhythm it's like being a musician or whatever once you get into a rhythm of what you like to do what you feel comfortable doing I think you just fall into you create more and more and more but making sure that everything is connected so that the first piece of art that I do will be connected to the thousandth in some way yeah. in the same way that a filmmaker the first film he does will be connected to the, the latest film he does because mm. there'll be there'll be a learning thing that goes through it and I think that's yeah. just part of it is feeling confident and and also being prepared to keep fucking going because yeah. you know I, I as you can see there there's a shitload of stuff on those shelves that yeah. when I printed them I thought wow these are going to sell really well yeah. and I've still got them on my shelf mm. and then other times I'll only do three of them and think I don't really like it and mm. they all go and then mm. you're like fuck I should have printed a hundred more and mm. I would so it's this sort of weird thing you're always exposed to what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve yeah but for me, I tell you, I mean, it's, I think again, it back to that pandemic thing. If I just get to the end of the week and I'm still having fun, that's that'll do. Mm. I mean, you know, my long-term plans have gone completely out of the window. Mm. I just want to carry on doing, being being happy and being fulfilled. Yeah, is really, really like moment to moment. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'll do some stuff. If I do a good print, I'm the biggest narcissist in the world, riding around on my bike, hooting the horn and shouting. Yeah. And then if I do something I don't like, I'll just go home and lie flat on my face on the floor and cry. But it's, I think that's just part of the creative process. And then you yeah. get up and you fucking do it again. Like mm. An hour later or a day later, you just, mm. just keep going. Mm. And part of it is just keep fucking going. Yeah. Such motivation. And you have a mantra. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, and, and this was, this was something that I've been sort of, playing because the thing I like doing with my my work is to try and create a reaction I like it when you watch a film you know when I was a kid watching Bruce Lee films you'd come out and you'd think you were Bruce Lee you'd, yeah. you'd listen to a good bit of music you'd dance with art there's a lot of art that makes you just go hmm oh yeah how clever how, how wonderfully <laughs> thoughtful I'm like fuck off yeah. you know make it make it fun and so uh, I love to try and get a reaction out of people and I think it's really important for me that you create an emotional con- connection with people mm. and I think that's driven by maybe the journey that I've been on because mm. it's like you know I spent a lot of time acting and, and being something I wasn't and having to pretend to be a loving husband when I didn't want to be in, a, in that relationship trying to be a, a guy that worked in advertising I mean I used to call myself an ad fuck to people you know mm. so I obviously didn't have an awful lot of respect for myself and I think since I've done this, now I feel like I'm in the place I want to be. Mm. 
And so my mantra was always just like, be happy, be generous, make happy. And it's like, just try and make a difference. Yeah. So every single piece of work has to be, has to create a difference. You know, yeah. and whether you're a, sometimes with graffiti artists, you know, they want to change stuff and challenge stuff and create a fight. That's a really good. That's a really good thing to do because you're making you'll make it point naught two five percent better than it was the day before you you did it. Yeah. But and sometimes that's the tiny amount, but it's it's fucking it's good enough sometimes. And if it and if it keeps going and you inspire other people and they do the same thing, then great. Yeah, a lot of people now with the world that we live in, it's so pressured all the time to be at this level because there's so much competition because you can see the competition online and it's so beautiful to see how when everything in life has come so digital you've really brought back to right here this is on a map an old map analog and and being able to have people touch things and being able to have people think think right in front of you get away from the screen get away from this little device and what it is and just blurt it out let it happen yeah. and motivate people to consistently be who they are. I have a, I have a friend that, that introduced me to you, yeah. and she talks all about how every time she looks at prints that are a lot of just three words, yeah. makes her just blow up and think differently. And I think that you have such a great way of sharing and telling stories that all you need is blank. And it's so easy for people to use that as a weapon for yeah. themselves. And it's it's important to me because you know when I when I worked in the, the corporate side, it was I used to love mentoring people. You get this young talent, and you'd help them talk to them about where they want to be, what they want to be doing in ten years time, five years time, twenty years time. There's a conversation there. There's a journey that you can go on, mm. and you can help. And if people are no good at this then try and help them become a little bit better at it or stop doing things you're no good at and do things that you you want to do. Yeah. And I, and I really enjoy that. And I love this thing at the minute where, also because I'm old, they treat me like the old granddad around here. So you get all these young kids coming in from the you know the restaurant who go, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm like, well, why don't you fucking do that? Yeah. And, and just having that conversation is really powerful because yeah. we all we all searching for it. I'm searching for it. Every fucker out there is searching for what's the next iteration of what I'm going to do. Yeah. And what's that little signal? What's that little sign? What's that little thing that's going to push me? You know, for me, it was going doing a screen printing course and literally my whole life changed overnight. Mm. Um, for other people, it can be, you know, eating a bowl of pasta and thinking, fuck, I could have done this. I might set up, my, I might set up that restaurant that I've got in my head or I might yeah. make that music or do whatever it is that is going to drive you. Everybody, yeah. especially creative people, will be sitting there yearning to find that little trigger mechanism sometimes mm. they find it themselves and other times it'll be something that'll trip them up and smash them in the face mm. and i just think um it's a lovely moment to be part of to experience it is amazing but to yeah. also help others if you can it's great yeah well thank you for being a motivation cool. no thank problem. you for doing what you're doing you would think in this small shop that there's a little bit of power that you have but your power exceeds this little shop and i'm very excited to see what now? A little bit bigger space, let's just say physically. Look at me now, I've got two <laughs> functioning fire extinguishers. Yeah, maybe you won't leave. Wasn't the same earlier. <laughs> yeah. Just in one afternoon changes yeah. the entire yeah. aspect. Yeah. Thank you for being so moving forward and being so motive and sharing stories no through problem. different channels and consistently doing that. Thank you. Real Hackney Dave, excited for your new place. Thank you for having us this, eve- this afternoon. It's been great.